John chapter 1, and we want everybody to be able to follow along, so Todd and Len have some Bibles on the sides here. If you'll get their attention, they will get you a Bible so that you can follow along in John chapter 1. And it's page number 587, page 587, and the Bibles the fellows are distributing, John chapter 1. Most of you know that before I came on full-time with the church in the summer of last year, I had a a real job. Rather than just working one day a week for a couple of hours, I had a real job in the computer field, and I had done so for 20 years. At one point, I had worked for a good-sized software company in Ann Arbor. There were a number of unique things about that company, one of which was the fact that the owner, Gail, would eat lunch in the lunchroom like a regular person. She would sometimes come in and sit at my table and we'd talk, me and the owner, just like two real people. During those talks, I found out a lot about Gail. I found out that she graduated from Lincoln Park High School. As I recall, she never graduated from college. We talked about religion, politics, sports, technology, you name it. The owner and me just talking like two regular folks. Now, I knew that I was a real person, or I was pretty sure, but I wasn't trained to think of the owner that way. The truth is, most people are not. You hear it when people speak of the owners of sports teams, for instance. The players and the broadcasters invariably refer to the team owners as Mr. Illich, Mr. Davidson, Mr. Ford. But Gail was just Gail. She dressed and she talked like the rest of us. and She mingled with the regular staff. Many of us have worked for large companies with CEOs who are distant geographically and positionally on the organizational chart. So much so that you could spend 30 years there and never meet the owner and not think it strange at all. Now marvel at this. The one who owns the house in which you live. The one who owns the company at which you work, the one who owns your mortgage company and its CEO and your company and its owner or owners, the one who owns because he made the planet that we inhabited, that we inhabit, the galaxy of which it's but a tiny part, and the universe of which our galaxy is but a tiny part. The owner. The owner of all things and of all people came to us. And when he came to us, the Bible tells us he became like us. He dressed and talked and mingled like one of us. And I didn't know and I don't know Gail's motives for eating with the commoners in the lunchroom. Could have been, she was just cheap. It could have been that she just saw it as the best way to motivate us because, after all, she needed us. But our creator and owner did not become like us because he needs us, but because we need him. 
The Bible says incredibly in John chapter one and verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I invite you to follow along on the outline we provided at the back of your program. Because as we meet our maker in the pages of the Gospel of John, we see that as John introduces our maker to us, he tells us that the maker, God, became man. And that line, the first line in verse 14, the word became flesh describes one of the great doctrines of Christianity. It's called the Incarnation. And it's called that because the Latin word for flesh is carne. And you're familiar with that Latin word because most of us are carnivores. With all due respect to the folks at PETA, I'm a carnivore. Which means I eat meat. Carne means meat or flesh, and the incarnation means that God became flesh and bones. And in so doing, he became fully human. The eternal God took to himself flesh just like you and I have. He became a man. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible uses three words to describe this event. The Bible says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very, and here's the first word, nature of a servant. Being made in, here's the second word, human likeness. And being found in, and here's the third word, appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And all of these terms refer to his humanity. The Bible is saying that this one who eternally existed as God became a man. But he didn't just pretend to be a man. Masquerading as if he was hiding behind human flesh. He was truly, the Bible teaches, a man. As the Bible describes the life of Jesus, it tells us of him becoming weary, needing rest. We find him becoming thirsty. We find him hungry. We find him sorrowful. We see him with all of the normal human frailties. Jesus became a man, fully human. But he also remained fully God. Jesus made it clear to those who heard and saw him that in addition to being a man, he was God. And that's why his opponents on more than one occasion sought to stone him. John chapter 5 tells of one particular occasion. And it says, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father. Now note this, making himself equal with God. In John chapter 20, what if Jesus' followers, Thomas, greeted him with these words? He said, my Lord and my God. And then Thomas offered worship to Jesus. And Jesus gladly accepted that worship, a thing that it would have been blasphemous for him to do if it were not, in fact, the case that Jesus was and is God. This means that the incarnation... 
the conception and the birth of Jesus was not the beginning of his existence, as many mistakenly believe. It was the beginning of his mission. The Bible teaches that the word, as verse 14 says, the word became flesh. In verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The Bible teaches that the word who, according to verse 1, is God, the eternal God became man without ceasing to be God. And he did this to accomplish two very important things. I have them for you in your outline. To make himself available to us and to make himself known to us. Notice again the first line of verse 14. The word became flesh. And then it says, and he made his dwelling among us. When it says he made his dwelling among us, it literally means he pitched his tent in our midst. Now, why is it stated that way? Do you all remember in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, that God gave plans for an elaborate tent, which would be the focal point of God's worship? There was a courtyard around that tent, and there were rooms within it. It was a place where God dwelt among his people. The Bible is saying here that Jesus Christ is our new tent or tabernacle. It's an allusion to the Old Testament tent or tabernacle where God met with his people in the wilderness. Here are some implications of that. We've left you some space in your outline if you care to jot these down. It means that Jesus, then, is central to our life and our faith. God instructed his people that when they marched, they were to follow the tabernacle. When they stopped, they would set it up and the twelve tribes of Israel would encamp around it with three on each of its sides. It was an ever-present reminder that the God of heaven was central to everything that they did. It was central to their life and to their faith. The Bible says here, Jesus is our tabernacle. He's the new focus now. There's no longer a tent in the wilderness. God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle was central to their life and faith. Jesus is central to our lives and our faith. The tabernacle was the place where God met with man. And Jesus Christ then is now the place where God meets with us. The tabernacle was routinely called the tent of meeting. It was where God met with his chosen people. God, in effect, said, here, in this place, I'm going to meet with you. You all remember Job and Job's dilemma? As he wondered about all the things that had happened to him. At one point, Job cried out to God for an arbitrator that could lay his hand on God and lay his hand on man and bring the two together. That didn't happen in the tent in the wilderness because there was, the Bible tells us, a great curtain that separated men from the presence of God. But Jesus, thanks be to God, is a different kind of tent. The curtain has been torn in half And we are invited into the very presence of God as Jesus, the God-man, lays his hand on God, lays his hand on man, and he brings the two together. He is the meeting place between God 
and man. So as our tabernacle, he's central to our lives and to our faith. He's the place where God meets with us. Here's a third implication of that. It's that he is our place of atonement. I'll explain what that means. He's our place of atonement. In that tabernacle in the wilderness, you may remember one day each year, the high priest was allowed to enter into the room called the holy place or the holy of holies. And he entered in to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. That day was called Yom Kippur, the Jewish holy day. It means the day of atonement. It was just observed two weeks ago. It was a fearful time where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with a bowl of blood from the sacrifice. And there upon the lid of a box, the box called the Ark of the Covenant, the lid called the Mercy Seat, he would sprinkle the blood and make atonement for the sins of the people. And as the priest would go into the holy place and there make a sacrifice, it served to temporarily Turn aside the anger of God because of the sins of the people. In the New Testament, if you care to jot it down, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 to be precise. In Romans 3.25, Jesus Christ is called the sacrifice of atonement. Connecting what he did on the cross with what the priest would do at the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Now, Jesus Christ and his death on the cross are the place where the anger of God is turned aside because he himself is the sacrifice. He himself paid the penalty for our sin. He's the place of atonement. And now we can come to him like the tax collector. You remember who prayed and in humility, he simply said, Lord, be merciful. Literally be propitiated. For me, a sinner, and that word propitiation means an atonement, a covering that assuages the anger of God. And in order for that to happen, we now come to Jesus. Friends, the true and living God is different from all the other imposters out there. The God of the Bible, and only the God of the Bible, comes personally to man, enters our plight, and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Commentator John Stott has captured this very eloquently. He said, we're not to envisage God on a deck chair, but on a cross. The God who allows us to suffer once suffered himself. I myself, Stott says, could never believe in God were it not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who's immune to it? He says, I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and I've stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha with his legs crossed and his arms folded and his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away 
And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wretched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. And Stott says, that's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. And our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. He says, finally, there's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. And I challenge any, any other religion to show a God like that. God became man. He became man to make himself available to us. And he became man to make himself known to us. Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. As we look at the life of Jesus Christ, you might ask, what glory do we find in him? He was born in a lowly condition that no one could have been born into who was not impoverished. We find him living his life in poverty. We find him saying that he had no place to pillow his head. Where's all the glory in that? Do you remember that in the tabernacle, that tent in the Old Testament where God would meet with his people? That God would indicate his presence there by a pillar of cloud that came down and it would rest on that spot in the tent called the Holy of Holies. That pillar of cloud was called the Shekinah. It means the presence. And it was a way of saying that the presence of God is here. And when the Bible says here, we have seen his glory, it's saying that the Shekinah, the presence of God, is here among men. And John, who wrote this, had actually seen that presence in all of its brilliance. You may remember that one day Jesus Christ singled him out along with Peter and with James. He took them to a mountain in northern Galilee where Jesus began to pray. The Bible tells us that as Jesus prayed, he was, Jesus was transformed. The veil of Christ's humanity was pulled back. And for a moment, Peter, James, and John saw the brightness of his divine glory shining. The Bible tells us that his face shone like the sun. You see a sight like that and you'll never forget it in your life. And John says, we have seen his glory. John chapter 2. This book, chapter 2, Jesus performs his first miracle. And at the conclusion of that very first miracle that Jesus performed, it says in verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And then notice, he thus revealed his glory 
and his disciples put their faith in him. At every moment of everything that Jesus did when he walked the earth, all of those moments were filled with showing forth the character of God, God's glory. Not only was the glory of God visibly displayed in him, but notice as well, he made himself uniquely known in Jesus. Notice what verse 14 says. His glory is the glory of the one and only. Most of us grew up hearing He's the only begotten. Some of you may be reading that right now in that verse as I speak. The NIV says the one and only. Why? The Greek word for one and only is monogenes. Mono means one. Genes means kind. He is, Jesus is, one of a kind. The one and only, absolutely unique. The glory of God has been visibly revealed and displayed, but it's uniquely displayed in Jesus. And the importance of that fact is this. He alone is the unique display of God's glory, the one and only. People refer frequently to finding God in nature or finding God on their own. Hear this. If you want to find God, there is one and only one place to find him. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ, God, the one and only. Jesus made God known to us. Visibly and uniquely and finally, he made God known to us fully. Notice verse 14. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The character of God is displayed in your life and in my life as we're transformed little by little, bit by bit, day by day. And it's partially or dimly displayed in us. But in the glory of Christ, the character of God is fully displayed. And here we have a reference back to Exodus chapter 33 in the first part of your Bible, second book in your Bible. And there Moses begged God to show him, Moses, his, God's glory. God told Moses, no one can see me and live. But I'm going to put you, Moses, over in this niche, in this rock. I'll give you a physical display of my glory in a diminished fashion. I'll appear like a man, but I'll cover you with my hands so you won't see me from the front. You'll just catch a glimpse of me as I retreat. And that little glimpse is going to be awe-inspiring, an overwhelming display of my glory. And then in that passage, here's what the Lord says to Moses. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then he adds this interesting comment, giving the significance of his name. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The supreme glory of God is found in his authority, his sovereignty. That God does as he pleases in his universe. The sovereignty of God strikes fear in the hearts of those who don't know God. Perhaps as I just mentioned it, it's striking fear in your heart right now. But it comforts those who have come to God through Jesus Christ. Because we know 
that this God is in control of everything that happened this past week, everything that will happen this next week, come what may. And we know that God's sovereign majesty is not whimsical and it's not arbitrary and it's not mean-spirited. But the verse tells us that God, fully displayed in Jesus, is full of grace and truth. His glory is full of grace because He's the one who has made atonement for our sins. His glory is full of truth because He reveals to us the reality of our universe and He gives us a foundation upon which we can build our lives. Francis Schaeffer tells the story, told the story. He's now gone to be with the Lord. True story of a congressman who was talking to a group of young movers, up-and-coming movers and shakers, and telling them that we need to establish proper moral values in our country once again. And at the end of his talk, one of the young people asked an honest question. He just said, on what do you base, from where do you derive your values? And the congressman did not have an answer for him. In Jesus Christ, friends, we find the grace that forgives sin. And we find the truth on which we can build our lives. Incorporating values that will never change. We have seen his glory and his glory is full of grace and full of truth. That's why the songwriter was correct when he said this about Jesus. He was unlike any other man. And yet so much like me. It's the miracle of the incarnation. God becoming man in order to be available to us and make himself known to us. We're done. We're going to pray in just a moment. But friends, through the incarnation, God became a man without ceasing to be God. And that's the foundation upon which Christianity is built. And he did this in order to bring us to God and to bring God to us. So my question to you is this. Have you received the grace, the forgiveness of sin that he came to offer? Have you responded to his command to repent? Have you now determined to build your life upon the foundation of truth that is found in him alone? If not, the anger of God is not assuaged. It is not covered. And it still abides upon you. But the blood of Jesus can be sprinkled on your life. And the anger of God removed. And a relationship with the God who made you and owned you will be established. We're going to pray. We're going to offer you opportunity to do that. How do you do that? You say, I have sinned against this God who made me. You recognize that that's the reason Jesus came for his mission to die and pay the penalty for your sin. And you repent of your sin. It means, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I've been going my way. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And then you receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do you do that? You don't have to do anything from your heart. You pray to God. You don't give money. You don't get baptized. You don't walk an aisle. You don't run an aisle. You pray to the Lord. A prayer like this from your heart to God. If you mean that, the blood of Jesus is sprinkled on your life. And he establishes a relationship with you. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you.
for the look into this marvelous verse packed with meaning in your word. Thank you for your servant who gave it and for the impact that Jesus had on his life and for his record preserved for us. Thank you for the impact that Jesus continue to have, continues to have on lives. I thank you, Lord, for the impact he's had on my life, transforming me and the continual work that is being done through his Holy Spirit to transform me and us into the image of his dear son. I thank you as well that his mercy, his grace is available to everyone who hears this right now. I pray that your spirit is drawing men and women to yourself, young people to yourself, who are having the blood of Jesus sprinkled on their life. For full pardon, full forgiveness, a changed life, new direction, so that they can bring you glory. The glory for which you've done all things and the glory you so richly deserve. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.